So at the advisement of others and after some reflection, after last week's sermon, I decided that to simply leave last week's sermon, which felt like it ended fairly abruptly here to me, and I left out so much, I always leave out so much even if you can't believe that, (laughs) I left out so much that I thought I've got to resume this and offer some clarifications this week as we go through the series on did Jesus really say, looking at things that Jesus say that kind of run against the grain of what seems so ordinary and natural to us. It seemed to me that not to follow this up would be kind of like what happened when you were younger, perhaps, and you watched what critics would call the greatest television show that's ever been aired, The Dukes of Hazard. When Bo and Luke Duke are in the General Lee and they're jumping over a creek on somewhere in a holler in Hazard County, talking at the same time, uh, lost sheep to shepherd to Uncle Jesse, Roscoe Pico train is barreling down with Flash on their trail. You can't turn to after a commercial. You've got to come back and find out what happened. That car had amazing suspension. Every time I've jumped a car like that, it didn't run later. So we're going to come back to the Dukes episode after the commercial of the intervening seven days, and we're going to look some more at this topic of debt cancellation called forgiveness. Last week we looked at the parable of the unmerciful servant. This week Jesus says a similar thing in his teaching his disciples how to pray and the manner in which they should pray. And he gives this commentary only on one part of the prayer. And it's about this idea of not paying people back. He says if you're stingy, if you're stingy with God's generosity, God's going to be stingy with you. If, on the other hand, you are eager to not pay people back, God will likewise be eager to not pay you back. And so that's a kind of troubling thing. So we'll start with looking at this, a story I read this week that Scott Jones gave me this essay from John Steinbeck where he's writing to Sports Illustrated telling him exactly why he will not write an article. He writes an article to tell them why he won't write an article about sports. And he tells us about his best friend, in the fourth grade in 1908, named Pickles Moffat. Now, Pickles, he describes, was an almost perfect little boy. You know why? For he could throw rocks harder and more accurately than anyone. And he was brave beyond belief in stealing apples or raiding the cake section in the basement of the local Episcopal church. You see, Pickles, Pickles had an amazing arm, and so this made him an amazing boy. Pickles was brave. He'd steal stuff. He was a skirt of nothing. But, he says, Pickles only had one worm in him. And this is what the problem was about Pickles. The writing of a simple English sentence would put him in such a state of shock that it was very much like the condition which we now call battle fatigue. Our our version of post-traumatic stress, I'm imagining. He's saying Pickles is this guy who's fearless in every realm of life, but you put him in a classroom and have the teacher ask him to write an essay, and he starts to have tremors. He's paralyzed in fear. That's his only worm in him. And it makes me think that there's this one worm in us. 
And this is part of what we're saying week after week. When Jesus elaborates so often on this need for us to replicate the forgiveness, to duplicate, to extend the mercy that he's given to us, what he's telling us to do is to counter this one worm in us, this one defect that assaults all of us so profoundly. And it's this, that all of us, without being taught, preference our own preferences. All of us prize our own preeminence. All of us esteem our own emotions over and against other emotions. So it's very easy for us to go through situations and think about how it affects us that someone didn't do something for us or how it's affecting us that they did do something to us. It is not nearly as easy for us to think about how they may be feeling. And therefore, it seems as natural as breathing, as involuntary as blinking your eyes to seek revenge when someone wrongs you. It's the natural state of affairs. We've been saying it's indigenous to the human heart. It's what grows there naturally. But as we looked last week, Jesus says, if you follow your heart in this realm, if you follow your heart in vengeance and grudge keeping, what you will have is a bitter heart that will walk you into a grumbly hell. That was not a joke, and I'm glad no one laughed. To demonstrate this, I, I saw a, a video, a YouTube video, because one time the worst car that's ever been made, in 19, a 2009 GMC Acadia that Kathy owns, had to have the, among other things, had to have the headlight replaced. Its awfulness has nothing to do with Kathy. We did not make the car, you see. Well, the headlight had to be replaced, and so I went out under the hood. I've changed headlights. It's the one mechanical thing on the planet Earth I know how to do besides brush my teeth. I opened up the hood, and I looked under there, and I was quite certain that I was not looking at anything in a car. It might have been a spaceship. It might have been an episode of Buck Rogers. I don't know what it was, but there was nothing identifiable to me. Everything was encased. Nothing looked like a car. There was clearly no way to get to the headlights, so I opened up the owner's manual after a 30-minute search of all the different places, I realized it looks to me like they're telling me to call the dealer if I need to replace my headlight, which that made perfect sense. That's sarcasm. <laughs> I call the dealer, and I find out it's going to cost like 150 bucks. They say, yeah, they got to take off the front end or something like this to put the headlight in. I thought, oh, that makes sense. That's good. So I got on the, the interwebs, and I looked... And found finally this kind man, but not a, not, a, not a Sunday school teacher, but a kind man who was a mechanic who was helping me to see that, yes, there is a way for a normal person to replace a headlight in a GMC Acadia, and it's simple. It only involves taking off the front wheel. Okay. Sarcasm again. Taking off the front wheel, and then there's a skirt with like 142,000 screws in it. And you just have to undo all of those to get the skirt out of the wheel well. And then you have to put your arm up under there and hope it doesn't get pinched or all the circulation doesn't come off. It doesn't get strangled in there and you have to lose your arm. And it's simple. It only takes about an hour. So we did that. And by we did that, I mean, uh, Jameson Griffin one time came over and I stood there while he did it. And I handed him stuff. And we cussed together. 
But when I was watching this video of how you did this, I thought it was pretty telling about what's so natural for us, what's so involuntary for us. There's this video. This man is in a garage. It's cold, apparently. He says, so what you have here is a 2008 GMC Acadia. As you can see, I've already taken off the front wheel. And as I was mentioning earlier, whoever was the engineer who designed this car ought to be freaking crucified. <laughs> so what you do is, you didn't, so he, he didn't think anything of it, but it occurred to him very naturally, and he didn't say freaking. It occurred to him very naturally just in the normal state of affairs, to mention that there ought to be an engineer crucifixion <laughs> over this headlight. He recognized that there had been an agony imposed on car owners. There had been an injustice created in the whole wide universe over this car design. And it's wicked and it's evil and they will pay for their sins. <laughs> but just the fact that he could jokingly, and we can hear a joke about it, it just occurs to him this sense of like, they did something wrong, they need to pay. This is ridiculous. It's natural. We laugh at it, of course. We don't say, that's, that's crazy. They would say, it was like, dang right he said that. And if you want to bring it closer to home, look at what happens to you. Your spouse, or a parent, or a child, or your boss, or your friend. They hurt you in some way, or they criticize you in some way. Do you ever do this? Like if you're, say your husband gets on to you. Or your wife gets onto you, or your, your boss gets onto you, and you say, you know, your boss criticizes you in front of everyone, and you say, why, thank you, sir. You know, in fact, in my morning devotions, I've been realizing what a colossal lack of humility I have. And your criticism, shaming and humiliating as it is, I now realize is actually an agent in our gracious Lord's hand to open up my eyes and show me that I'm not really all that as I thought. So all I want to say to you for injuring me so grossly and humiliating me with such great shame is praise be to you and praise be to God for this gracious gift that you've entrusted to me. Do you ever say that to your spouse? Is that how you respond? Is that how you respond to your boss, to your coach? If you say anything, I know how I respond if I'm even slightly thinking I'm being even remotely criticized. I'm mainly wrong. Is I defend myself. I get jacked up. What do you do? I mean, what do you do? Somebody says something to you, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. shut your face, you big fat poop. <laughs> That's what you say, like a little girl correcting her father, trying to teach her how to ski. You've heard that story. But Jesus says, look, if you follow this natural tendency, you're going to be missing out on something colossal. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins then your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, since this is so natural for us, and it's so important to Jesus, and he's saying counter what's natural to you, I think it's worth making sure you understand what Jesus is saying here is not exactly what I think it sounds like he's saying. He makes it sound just totally conditional. And in a way, I think, of course, it is conditional. But I think part of what he's saying here, if you think about the big picture of it, and you think about the story we looked at last week, where a large-hearted king forgave a servant gazillions of dollars and said, now don't you think you can go and forgive somebody for five bucks that they owe you? It would be something like this. In our world, we've decided that the, the, the medium of exchange for goods and services is the U.S. dollar. We use money. If you want to buy something, you've got to use money. 
What if you decided, you know what, I don't have any money, but I live in the woods. And we have a lot of possums. So you know what I think I'm going to do in this economy? I think I'm going to start using possum hides as currency. I don't have any money, but I've got a lot of possums. I'm going to start shooting possums, skinning them. I'll use the possum hides. So when the electric power board bill comes, you send in uh, six possum hides to the EPB. You can't do that electronically. You've got to use the mail. <laughs> now, now I don't, how do you know it's six? Well, I, I don't know. You're just guessing because you're, tr- you're starting a new thing here. You send it to the EPB. Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to get arrested because that's weird. They're going to think you're up to something, that you're trying to spread disease. They're going to think it's some kind of act of domestic terrorism. What is this person doing sending possum hides around? What does this mean? Is this some new cult? Because we've decided we're all going to use money to trade. Well, see, in God's economy, the currency is forgiveness. When you depart from this life into the world to come, you know who all the people will be there, what they'll have in common? They will all be people who are formerly allergic to God, who now love him immensely. And the bridge that got them there was the death of Jesus Christ, which abolished all their sins. All the people in heaven and all the people in the life of the world to come will be forgiven. That's what they have in common. Clothed in a righteousness that's not their own. God's economy is forgiveness. That's If you want to interact with God, that's the way we interact. And so if you suddenly start acting by payback, you're like a person in America trying to use possum skins to pay for things. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fly here. It's not what we use here. You're trying to operate outside the realm of how God has chosen to operate. In fact, you know, the Apostle Paul could say, summarize his, messenger, his message as an ambassador of Christ by saying, that God was not holding people's sins against them. And so we plead with others, be reconciled to God. (laughs) There's no debt. There's no score. God said, that's huge. You need to believe that. You need to be happy in that news and in that knowledge. I've been working my way through the West Wing. I mean, that just got produced last like the last two years, right? I think it's from 1968. But anyways, there's this one scene where the president walks into the general counsel's office and he says this as there is a tape recorder seated on the desk and the general counsel's holding a gavel in his hand, or he's got a big gavel on his desk, rather, a giant gavel. Wooden hammer, for those of you who are not familiar, fancy words. And this thing is stuck on record. The little dictaphone, it's just stuck on record. It's just recording. The president walks in and he says, well... Here's what I gotta know. I gotta know if I have helped 16 other people conspire to, de- to defraud the American people. And in that moment, as the president reveals this bomb, the general counsel picks up his gavel. He says nothing to the president. He picks up his gavel and he goes, pow! And he smashes to bits the recorder. You gather why? You don't want this conversation recorded. There's about to be some stuff said. But it occurs to me, that's what Jesus is saying. That for any who will receive it and any who will believe it, God has smashed the recording of your life. Everything that you regret, everything that you wince over, everything that you are in shame about, 
Everything that you can't look somebody in the eye about, and it's so hard for you to admit, God has taken a giant divine gavel, and he has smashed it to bits and says, there's no recording against you. He did that when he smashed his son to bits on the cross. And so that's his economy. And that's why he can say, you got to forgive because your record's been expunged. How can you keep records on others? How can you become their inspector? How can you become their Javert? That's a less miserable uh, reference. We won't go into it. So a few points about this then, of clarification, after you've got the basis, I think, of what Jesus is saying. When you look at him mentioning this in a prayer, first thing is this. You've got to attend and aspire to forgiveness daily. 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 When Jesus is talking about prayer, do you notice that he, one of the things he says is, when he gets to the petition phrase after we're asking God to set up things on the earth like it is in heaven, remove all the God allergies, let people be just as fond, just as eager to follow you as they are to do anything, just like it is in heaven. He then says, give us today our daily bread. Supply our needs. And right after that, you've got give and forgive. Sandwiched together, or as Corby would say, smashed together. I had to, I had to. Smashed together, give and forgive. This recognition that Jesus is imagining that God's people who call him Father are going to be depending on him every single day for all the things they need And every single day for all the forgiveness that they need. And for all the forgiveness that they've got to offer to other people. All the payback that they've got to refuse. All the ways that God has to let them off the hook and cleanse them daily. You ought to assume some sort of danger in your own spiritual life. If you go to prayer... In long periods of time, if, for instance, someone says, have you ever asked for forgiveness? And you say, I just try not to make mistakes. Well, that's a good idea. Try not to make mistakes. I don't urge you to try to make mistakes. But you haven't had any encounters with God if, all, if you never ask for forgiveness. Because if you have, you will tremble a little bit. And you'll recognize, boy, I need some cleansing here. Or there's no dice. Of course, Jesus has promised the cleansing. That's why he says, pray to your father that he'll forgive you. He will forgive you. For some of us to be able to attend to forgiveness daily, it might just mean giving ourselves fully to this Christianity thing in a way that we haven't yet. You know the story of Louis Zamperini? You read Hillebrand's book, Unbroken, or you saw it in the movies recently. When I read that a while ago, I was stunned. Zamperini, a marathoner, miler, went down the South Pacific, became a Japanese prisoner of war. And in this prison of war, in this uh, camp, this concentration camp, he had a tormentor, a captor they called the bird. And the bird made his life a living hell. He had post-war nightmares for months and months and years afterwards. The bird would ask for prisoners And their punishment, some would come to be punched in the face every night before bed. He practiced his judo on someone repairing, convalescing from an appendectomy surgery. He gave the prisoners 500 calories to eat a day. He was vicious. He was cruel. Intolerably cruel and unimaginably so. Zamperini was haunted by this man. 
When he came back to America, he became an alcoholic. His marriage was falling apart. And one day he happened upon a Billy Graham crusade. What are the chances? And he submitted himself to the reign and the rescue of Jesus Christ. And then he knew, I have to forgive this, the bird. So he wrote him a letter, and in it he said, My life began to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. I had a confrontation with God. And I realize anybody who becomes a Christian, that's what happens. Anybody who keeps walking as a Christian, that's what you do. That's why Jesus is urging you to pray daily. You want to keep being confronted with God. You want to keep going eye to eye, heart to heart with God because he's the one who enables you to do things. He's the one for whom you were made. He's the one with whom you have to deal we need to attend and aspire to forgiveness daily. And related to this, we need to address the agony you feel from the pain. I picked Psalm 142 to be read, that Jordan read so ably there, because it's one of my favorite. And it helps us realize this. When we have stand, we're standing in the need of forgiveness, when Zamparini needs to forgive the bird for the awful things that he's done, when we need to forgive someone who's taken something from us, who's ruined an opportunity, who's made our life miserable, who's stolen from us, who's injured us with their words or with their uncaring, one of the things you've got to be able to do in prayer is to address the agony of it. Because it hurts, it stings, it wounds, it maims. And generally it's going to be the people closest to you who have the the right and the power to hurt you the most. And a lot of you know that. When Jesus says, go to your Father and pray in secret, he's saying, you know that prayer is a real thing, right? It's not just a thing you do before supper. It's not just a thing you have to do at church when a missionary comes and you have to pray for him or else God's going to smite the place. No, prayer is a real thing. You're actually interacting with the power and the love that fuels the sun. You're actually interacting with the God who will see what you've done in secret and reward you for what you have done. That's why David, who's hiding in a cave because King Saul's after him and his bloodhounds, as Spurgeon would say, could say to God, I cry aloud. He's in a cave. You ever been in a cave because you're getting hunted down by a king and a militia? Probably not. It hasn't happened to me in seven years. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. I pour out my complaint before him. I say, you know what, God? This stinks. I'm looking around. This is what he says. I look around. There's nobody who cares a flip about me. No one. No one. I'm in a cave. Did you notice I'm in a cave? It's dark. It's moldy. My sinuses are bothering me. Do you feel like you can talk to God like that? I can't believe what she did to me. I can't believe what he did to me. I can't believe what they did to me. I can't believe what you did to me. Do you understand that so much of your unforgiveness may be that you actually have a quarrel with God? And part of facing your agony, which will, as Oswald Chambers says, your agony is either going to make you a much better person or a much worse person. You've seen this in your life. You've seen it in other people's lives. Some people age very, they season well, right? And some people get bitter like a raisin inside. Acid bitterness and grudge and complaint, and they just become a grumble. 
And a lot of that has to do with, can I accept that God is involved even in this awful thing that has happened to me? People that can't accept that, people who reckon with God about that, realize that he's involved in everything. That's why Jesus says, pray for forgiveness and pray that you can forgive others. Because God's involved even in the things, and using even the things that cause you to have to not pay back people that create agony in your life. It's really a commitment to reality, to go to God and address your agony and to name it. You know the experience, perhaps, of getting bills at your house? Have you ever gotten bills and you thought, you know, if I open that bill, it's going to say I owe money and I'm going to have to pay it, so I just won't open it, I'll just leave it right there. If I leave it right there, I think the rule is you don't have to pay it if you don't open it. Isn't that right? That is not right. But for some reason, we are very committed, in general, to consoling lies, and it's much harder to face truths because they're kind of sometimes traumatic. But Jesus and the Psalms would urge us, bring the agony of your distress to God. Hash it out with him. Work it out with him because he's trying to wean you off yourself. Which brings up the next point about this. As you address your agony, do you know one thing about forgiveness that many people don't understand, especially many of you conscientious forgivers in here? We've got a lot of conscientious people in here who want to do right. And here's what you wonder. You think, I know I should forgive this person. You hear this sermon, you're like, oh, I know I've got to forgive my grandpa. I know I've got to forgive my aunt. I know I've got to forgive my mom. I know I've got to forgive my husband. But when every time I see them, when I think about what they did to me, I just feel so angry inside. And I, to that, I would say, well, what's that got to do with forgiveness? Huh? What does that have to do with forgiveness? You think because you're angry with somebody, you can't also forgive them at the same time? Forgiveness means you don't pay them back. It might be that some of the most heroic and beautiful and masterful acts of Jesus' forgiveness through a Christian happen when it's most tempting. When you want to knock somebody right in the nozzle and instead you do something good for them. You're angry, but you're not paying them back. And generally what will happen is, Keller talks about this in The Reason for God. It's really wonderful. Well, generally, what will happen, hopefully you've experienced this, when you commit yourself to forgiving somebody, and you say, I'm going to do good to them. I'm not going to talk bad about them. I'm not going to tarnish their reputation. I'm not going to post blogs about them in funny ways. I am not going to try to harm them for what they have done to me, whether by icing them out or by being aggressive in my speech. Generally, once you've made that commitment and you start addressing all this agony with God, you'll find your anger subsiding. You can plead for God to take it away from you. That's why I put this prayer, at the end of this prayer, he says, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. I'm imprisoned by grudges. I'm imprisoned by resentment. I'm imprisoned. I've got to have you do something or I'm sunk. That's why Martin Luther prayed this. This is Martin Luther prayer. He prays better than you. Listen to this. And me. My Lord Jesus... Look at how my neighbor has injured me, slandered my honor with his talk, and interfered with my rights. I can't tolerate this, and so I wish you were out of my way. I mean, Luther's calling a hitman. I wish you were out of my way. Oh, God, hear my complaint. That sounds like the psalmist. I cannot feel kindly toward him, even though I know I should. See how cold and insensible I am? Oh, Lord, I can't help it. And so I stand forsaken. If you change me, I will be devout and have better thoughts. Otherwise, I must remain as I am. 
Oh, dear God, change me by your grace. The end. Or amen. Do you hear that? God, I want this dude out of the way. I know I don't feel right about this. And the only way I know to do anything about it is to tap in to the power supply that fuels this power tool called forgiveness that puts things back together. But I'm one with Christ. The Spirit of God lives in me. And you're a powerful God who used the power that you had to raise Jesus from the dead. And you can raise me from the dead. From the death that it feels like when I have to forgive somebody and not pay them back. It feels like a death. But you can't resurrect if you don't die. You've got to give up your rights. And you do that by learning to be hypocritical to your emotions. Just because you feel angry and resentful, just don't pay them back. But know that you can still forgive somebody and still have residual pain, sorrow, anguish. It's still there. You've still got to work on that stuff privately with God and maybe with a friend or maybe with a counselor. And then don't pay them back. And the last thing is this. After you've addressed your agony, after you've attended to and aspired to daily forgiveness, you've got to wait for power from God, but you don't have to wait for repentance from others. That's a really important part about forgiveness, I think. You notice that Jesus, when he's talking about this, he just says, forgive us as we have forgiven others. And if you don't forgive men, we, God won't forgive you. He doesn't say, if the men meet certain conditions, if the women make sure they convince you that they're good and sorry enough. It's really important. Reconciliation. If two parties were friends and they have a rift... Reconciliation is going to depend on both of those parties for the rift to mend. Forgiveness just depends on one of them. Reconciliation depends on two parties. You may see how this works. It's how it works with God. Christ has died. Forgiveness is available to the whole everybody. But a lot of people are what you could call spitty pitters. Pity spitters, sorry. Man, I was waiting for that moment and I said it wrong. I didn't cuss, which is good. Pity spitters, like Javert, they spit God's pity back in his face. I don't want your forgiveness. That's why there will be nobody in hell who hasn't just resisted God's mercy. That's why they're there. The doors there are locked on the inside, says C.S. Lewis. Nobody's in hell that doesn't choose it. But those who want God's mercy... They can come, they can lay down their arms, and they can receive it and be reconciled to God. But the offer of forgiveness stands to everybody because of what Christ has already done. He's already absorbed all of your sins, all your treason, all your rebellions, every mistake you've made. He's absorbed it all in the cross. Reconciliation depends on you laying down your arms and coming to him, surrendering to him. Forgiveness depends on what he did. It's very important for you to realize this. There will be situations in your life where you're going to have to forgive somebody, but you may not be reconciled until they change. And you know this? Mirislav Wolf, who's a good friend, says this in a book. He says he has a good friend, a woman whose mother was an alcoholic when she was young. She abandoned the family. This girl grew up in her 20s. She, she felt so guilty for having, abandoned, for having not been around her mother, even though her mother had wounded her in so many tragic ways. So she went to her mother in her 20s and she came to her mom and she said, Mom, I want you to know. I want you to know that I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry for not reaching out to you. I'm sorry for, being, for abandoning you after those hard years and not reaching out to you in any way at all. And her mother, when she said, will you please forgive me? Her mother broke down in sobs and said, oh yes, of course, of course I'll forgive you. And they had this sweet and tender moment of embrace. But the woman, the young girl, the mom, I mean the uh, daughter, she wondered to herself, why is my mom not saying she's sorry? Why is my mom not saying she's sorry after all she's done? But then she decided to do this. She got down on her knees before her mother and she said, and I want you to know this, mother, the way you treated me as a child, the way you treated us, it was very hurtful. But I love you and I forgive you. My life has turned out well and I don't hold anything against you. I forgive you. And at that, her mother melted and threw her arms around and said, oh, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, she said. I'm so sorry. You see, most of us will not willingly open up our own treason to another if it's not safe. You think you're going to tell somebody you're sorry that you're pretty sure is going to hit you with a bat when you do? (laughs) Not if you were taught well. But if you know, And this is why your forgiveness often gives somebody who's wronged you a chance to repent. If you know God's mercy and you can extend it to others who don't deserve it, it might just soften their hearts. It might just open them up to come to the Savior. You don't have to wait for repentance to happen. We're closing now. You've got to address your agony. You've got to wait for power from God in prayer, which is a real thing, but not for repentance. And you've got to attend and aspire to daily forgiveness. There's a great scene in the great divorce, the C.S. Lewis story, where these busload of people from hell are making their way to heaven, and none of them in the end actually want to go to heaven. It's very interesting. It's part of his theology. And the people in hell are not real. They're not substantial. They're not solid. So when they, chat, they slap their chest, it doesn't make a sound. And there's this man who's in heaven, this beautiful spirit. They call him the bright man. And he comes to meet this guy who's come off the bus, this grumbly man. They were friends in real life. The bright man had actually committed murder, and now he's in prison. I mean, now he's in heaven, not, you know, not the same thing. And the ghost, this old man, this cantankerous man from hell, who's on the outskirts of heaven, is talking to the bright man from heaven. He says, look at me now. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I got no faults, far from it. But I've done my best all my life, you see. I've done my best. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job. That's the sort of man I was. And the bright man answers, it would be much better if you wouldn't talk like that. You're never going to get anywhere talking like that. What are you talking about? I'm not going on. I'm not arguing. I just want nothing but my rights. Same as you, see? Oh, no, it's not as bad as all that. 
I never got my rights, and you won't get your rights either. You'll get something much better. That's just what I mean. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best. I never done anything wrong. And here's the thing. Well, if you don't mind my saying so, here's the thing. How's a murderer like you up here and a chap like me down there? Well, I don't know where you'll be. Just be happy and come. What do you keep arguing for? I just want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Oh, then do. At once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking. And absolutely nothing can be bought. Be happy. And come, ask for the bleeding charity. For everything here is free for the asking. And nothing with Christ Jesus can be bought. Amen.